as we're settling back in, I'd just like to give a little update on our team that is in Kenya uh, this evening over there. In fact, they're joining us online this morning. Uh, welcome to them. And um, they completed the first week of training for pastors and their wives, as Jim mentioned, and it went really well. They've seen the Lord really working through that. Many of the topics they taught, the men said, we just had never heard this or had this type of teaching. They don't have the kind of resources that we have here in the United States. And so they're hungry for the word of God and they're feasting on that. Um, this, here's a couple pictures from week one. Uh, this is Dave leading some of the men in the Lord's Supper there. And a few of their wives are with them as well. Um, here's Dan doing some of the teaching for the men. And there's Kelly along with Lillian and some other members of the team along with one of the ladies there from Kenya. And Kelly has also completed that first week of teaching that she was doing. And uh, this morning, or what would have been last night for us, they traveled to a local church where they gathered for a service and Dan was able to give the message there. And in this picture, yeah, I wanted to point out Reagan and Lillian, or Lily, the two youngest members of our team who are there as well. What a great experience and a great opportunity. And uh, here you can see Dan teaching in that service. I think there's probably a translator to his right. And there Dave is also sharing with the people of Kenya. So we want to continue praying as they go into week two of training uh, starting tonight, which will be Monday morning there. And then they'll be returning home the following week. And so in fact, let's just pray for them right now. Can we? Heavenly Father, you're so much bigger than just what you're doing here in our lives and at Riverside. God, your gospel's going around, out around the world and we have the privilege of being a part of that. And God, we pray for Dave and Dan and Kelly and Reagan and Lily and the other members of the team as they work to equip the people of Africa for the work of ministry. God, we pray that you'd fill them with your Holy Spirit and give them wisdom and power as they teach, Lord. We pray that their words would be your words and that they would be life-changing. And God, we pray that there'd be a spirit of unity among them and the people of Kenya, that they would enjoy deep fellowship with these brothers and sisters in Africa. And God, we pray that you'd also be moving amongst us here this morning. Open our hearts and our minds and give us understanding in your word. And Lord, through all of this, we want to see you glorified. And so we ask for your help in these things, and we ask it in the name of our risen Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, we're going to be jumping in back into our series called Absolute Certainty in the epistles of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. But I want to ask you a question this morning. What things do you know for sure? What would you say you're really sure of? And what did it take to convince you that they are true. It was Benjamin Franklin who wrote famously in, eight, in 1789 that nothing is certain but 
death and taxes. Yeah, no, I'm sure he said that tongue-in-cheek because he knows there's other things that are quite certain. But what do you know for sure? I went looking for some polls. I wanted to know what was on the mind of Americans. And I didn't find any, but I did come across an interesting article on Oprah Winfrey's website. And this was called, The Top 20 Things Oprah Knows for Sure. And I thought, well, that's going to be interesting. It was. <laughs> I was kind of disappointed to find out that it was basically a collection of human wisdom. Somebody said this morning, yeah, that's an oxymoron, human wisdom. It kind of is. Number one, for instance, was this. What you put out comes back all the time, no matter what. This is my creed, she said. Is that really true? I mean, Jesus said that, um, you know, if you love God and others, you're going to face persecution. What comes back won't be the love that's going out. He said, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. So I don't see that as being sure, certain, or even true. Number two on the list of things Oprah knows for sure was kind of equally disappointing. And it says, you define your own life. Don't let other people write your script. That kind of sounds like the poem Invictus, doesn't it? I am the master of the fate. I am the captain of my soul. Well, listen to what James 4 says. It says, now listen, you who say today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make, more, and make money. Well, you don't even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You're but a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or do that. See, I wouldn't be so sure that we alone define our life. But the one that really ties into what I want to talk about this morning in the Word was number 11. I'll jump forward to that. It says this, trust your instincts, intuition doesn't lie. Really? (laughs) I can trust my instincts in everything? The Bible says this, there is a way that seems right to a man. In other words, it seems intuitive, but in the end it leads to death. You can't trust your intuition. Now God gave us the ability to think and reason, but we also need wisdom from above. See, he never, I say this often, he never calls us to blind faith. He doesn't. In fact, blind faith is dangerous because it opens us up to believing anything, even myths. God never says just believe. He gives us solid reasons to believe. And that's why he can hold us accountable to what we do with those reasons, with that evidence. And so this morning as we continue in in 1 John, um, we saw last week in chapter 5, the first five verses, We saw what it means to really trust in Christ. Not just believe, but to trust. And remember the illustration of the man with the wheelbarrow going across the the tightrope over Niagara Falls. Believing he can do it is one thing, but trusting, getting in the wheelbarrow and letting him wheel you across. That's trust. It's putting your whole weight behind something. It's completely relying upon something. 
That's what it means to trust Christ. Now in hearing this, someone might wonder, well, why should I trust like this in Jesus Christ? Why should I put my whole weight in that? Why should I bank on it? I haven't even seen him. Well, that kind of leads into what our text goes into this morning. And it's all about testimony, the testimony of who Jesus is. And so the message title this morning is Absolute Certainty of This Testimony. And it's, the text will be 1 John chapter 5, verses 6 through 10. And we're going to look at three parts. First of all, the proven testimony in verse 6. And secondly, the problematic text in verses 7 and 8. And finally, the personal test in verses 9 and 10. Now, this one's going to require us to get a little more technical as we examine the text this morning. If that's not your thing, just hang in there with me and just see what the Lord has for you in this. So, we're going to jump into 1 John, but first, know that in John's gospel, he gave personal testimony again and again of the things he saw and heard. He was an eyewitness, and he began his epistle, this letter of 1 John, by saying this, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which our eyes have seen, which we've looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared, and we have seen it and testified to it. And we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. He testified to what he had seen. And he does that over and over. But here, as we get further into chapter 5, the testimony that's highlighted is not John's testimony. Rather, it's testimony by God himself. And so keep that in mind as we read through this passage. Uh, 1 John chapter 5, beginning in verse 6. I'm reading from the uh, NIV 1984 translation. So it reads, this is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. He did not come by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. And the three are in agreement. We accept man's testimony, but God's testimony is greater because it is the testimony of God. Which he, has given to, which he has given about his son. Anyone who believes in the son of God has this testimony in his heart. Anyone who does not believe God has made him out to be a liar because he has not believed the testimony God has given about his son. This is God's word. We're going to see that this morning. We want to look first at the proven testimony in verse 6. Now, many scholars have said this is the most challenging, perplexing passage in the whole epistle, if not in the whole New Testament. And because it's our practice intentionally to teach through books of the Bible, I don't get to cherry pick the verses. I don't get to skip over this one and go, yeah, that one's a little awkward. Let's go to another one. I don't get to do that. The difficulty in this verse is centered around what it means when it says that Jesus is the one who came by water and blood. He's, it's not like he arrived on a boat. 
He came by water and blood. So what does it mean? Well, some like Luther and Calvin have said that the water refers to our baptism and blood refers to the Lord's Supper. And that John is writing about how Christ comes to us through the sacraments of the church. Okay, there's a little connection there, but there's a problem. It says he came. It's past tense. In the Greek, it's the aorist text, which is a past historical event. It doesn't say he's coming to us. It says he came. So that's not likely. Others, like Augustine, believe that the water and the blood describe what flowed from Jesus' side when the sword pierced him on the cross. And John indeed testifies to this. He says, I saw that water and that blood myself, and I testify to this. But if that's what it's speaking of here, how would he have come to us through this event? That was near the end of his ministry. If anything, he went out in this manner. Still others believe the water speaks of his birth, as in the waters of the womb, and that the blood speaks of his death. And this would make sense, because John would be saying that Jesus was born a man, and he died a man. He was fully God, yet he was fully man. And all of these have some merit, but probably the best understanding, I believe, is the oldest one that was recorded. And that was by Tertullian in the second century. The water probably refers to Jesus' baptism, and the blood refers to his crucifixion. And so baptism in crucifixion. And I want to look at that a little further. And I think it helps to first know that during the time of John's writing and the three or four centuries that followed, one of the greatest threats to the church was a heresy known as Gnosticism. These were the intelligentsia. They were in the know. They claimed to have a higher knowledge than any other people. And they were largely influenced by the teaching of the Greek philosophers like Plato. And the Gnostics believed that all matter is evil and the spirit is good. And so here's the implication that you think, well, I mean, there's a separation of spirit and body. But they said, whatever you do in the flesh, whatever sin, no matter how heinous, it doesn't matter. Because it's only the spirit that matters. It's only the spirit that's good. Do what you want, basically. And they also said that God in the person of Jesus could not have actually been fully human. Because matter, the body, is evil. And God wouldn't be joined to evil. And so they said that the spirit Christ descended upon the man Jesus at his baptism... And then it departed prior to his crucifixion because God could not have died. And this little heresy, if it were true, would upend the work of salvation because unless God was fully human, then his death on the cross wouldn't have been an acceptable sacrifice for sin. But see, contrary to the teaching of the Gnostics, the Bible says Jesus was fully God and he was fully man when he was crucified. It says his blood was poured out for us and we have redemption through his blood. Listen to what Hebrews 2.14 says. It says, since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that 
by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil. And then verse 17 says, For this reason he had to be made like his brothers in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. He had to become flesh. In other words, no flesh, no death, no atonement. God had to be fully human, but that's not what the Gnostics were teaching. Look back at chapter 4, verse 2. The second half of that verse says, Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. He emphasized it there too. He said, but every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of Antichrist, which you have heard is coming and even now is already seen in the world. So he made a real point of this. It seems that John, in this writing, and the Holy Spirit guiding him, is trying to nip in the bud this heresy that Jesus was not fully a man. And and so he says, he did not come by water only, but by water and blood. He seems to be saying God was not only fully human at his baptism, he was fully human at his death. He was fully God and fully man. Making his death a suitable sacrifice for sin. And then the end of verse 6 says, and it is the Spirit who testifies because the Spirit is truth. That's pretty straightforward. This is the easy part of the verse. The Spirit testified to Jesus' deity at his baptism. Remember, heaven opened up and the Spirit of God descended upon him like a dove, in the form of a dove. And John the Baptist was told that this would be the sign of the Christ, the Savior from God. And so... He, John the Baptist said, I have seen and testify that this is the Son of God. And remember, the voice of the Father was there at the baptism too. The Spirit testified to his deity throughout his ministry because it was the Spirit empowering him to do these miraculous signs. I put some verses... I don't have them up there. But uh, you, you can read that. It was by the power of the Spirit. It says again and again that Jesus did these things. And the Spirit also testified to Jesus Christ through the resurrection. Romans 1.4 says, The Spirit testified that Jesus was the Christ at Pentecost when he descended upon the believers in affirmation of their message of who Jesus was. So Jesus himself said in John 15, 26, he said, when the counselor comes, who I will send you from the Father, the spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. The reason the spirit was sent was to testify about Jesus. But these weren't the first times that the spirit testified about Jesus. In John 5, Jesus said, you diligently study the scriptures because you think that by them you possess eternal life. And then he says this, these are the scriptures that testify about me. Yet you refuse to come to me to have life. The entire Old Testament testifies about Jesus. 
This in itself is proof that he was the Christ who inspired the scripture. It was the Spirit. Again, the Spirit is testifying about Jesus. By the way, have you noticed that the Spirit never calls attention to himself? He doesn't. He's always pointing to Jesus Christ. There are some believers who make it all about the Spirit. But the Spirit, his role is to point to Jesus Christ. So to whatever extent we use those gifts and that power from the Spirit, it should be for the purpose of pointing to Jesus Christ. So this is a testimony of the Holy Spirit. And then in verse 7 it says, For there are three that testified, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. And the three are in agreement. We saw how the water and the blood, blood probably refer to his baptism and his crucifixion. But how do the water and the blood themselves testify? The spirit testify, but how do the water and the blood testify? I know the spirit was there at the baptism. And the father testified with the voice from heaven. And the father testified at the crucifixion with the darkness, the earthquake, the tearing of the veil. The Roman soldier said, surely this was the son of God. The father was testifying, the spirit was testifying, but... How did the water and the blood testify? I really, really wrestled with this this week. It kept me up late several nights, just tossing and turning and trying to understand how this could be because I just don't want to stand up here and have to explain something that I don't even understand myself. It makes me very uncomfortable. And so my, my rule in message preparation is a concordance before a commentary. I want to go to the word of God first. I want to see everything that God says before I go looking at what other godly men have said about the word. I went through every passage I could find. What does this mean? The water and the blood testify. And I still just couldn't find any satisfactory explanation. So I turned to the scholars. But I didn't find a single scholar, I probably looked at 15 of them, I didn't find a single scholar who really addressed it. Most talked around it. A few of them did point back to the baptism and the crucifixion where the spirit and the father testified, but they didn't address how do the water and the blood testify. Well, I was about to let it go <laughs> when this thought, came to me rather suddenly and I'll share it with you but it comes with the disclaimer this is just my thought okay this is not may not be God's inspiration or his intended meaning for the, the text it may but it may not be I've done my best to search the scripture and 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 cry out to God for wisdom on this but I still give it to you with this disclaimer so here's what I think it's this, the water and the blood are testimonies of God woven through centuries of history and like the spirit, they point directly to Jesus Christ. Let me try to break that down. God brought the flood and delivered Noah and his family through the waters, 1 Peter 3.21 says. And he even ties it to baptism. God orchestrated the, the 
events of the Israelites passing through the waters of the Red Sea. Through the waters of the Jordan River as they entered the promised land. God established this system of purification by water whereby the priest could purify themselves so that they could draw near to God. He did that. God also orchestrated the events of the Passover with the blood of the lamb. He gave the requirements for the sacrificial system with the blood of bulls and goats and sheep for the atonement for sin. God wove this water and this blood throughout centuries of history with his people in a way that only God could do. And it all pointed forward to Jesus and his baptism and his crucifixion for the redemption of the world. I'm going to back up to that thought. See, the events of his baptism and crucifixion wouldn't be half the testimony apart from the centuries of history that pointed to it. It's the history which in a prophetic way allows us to say, yes, this is the Christ, the Son of God, the fulfillment of Scripture. Does that make sense? You might even say he came to us through the history of these events. Just as his ancestors came through the water and through the blood, Jesus came through these events and presented himself to the people. He said, these are the scriptures that testify about me. The scriptures include the water and the blood events that testify about Jesus. Now, I probably, I want to work on developing this more, but this is my best understanding of what these challenging verses are saying. The water and the blood are testimonies of God woven through centuries of history. And like the Spirit, they point directly to Jesus. So we can see that. We can see Jesus in these Old Testament events. So if that's helpful, great. If it's not, brush it aside. But this is my best attempt to understand this rather confusing passage. Now, Verse 7 once again says, for there are three that testify. And the testimony of these three is also significant. Because the Old Testament says every matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. And so this, this text lays out the three. Somebody created this really helpful graphic, I think. We got the water, we have the blood, and we have the spirit. And they're all in agreement and they're testifying to Jesus Christ. So this is the proven testimony of God. That was easy. <laughs> Let's look at the problematic text next. <laughs> this is in verse 7 and 8. Or I'll say would be in verse 7 and 8. Let me again read verses 7 and 8 together from the NIV. For there are three that testify. The spirit, the water, and the blood. And the three are in agreement. Now if you have a... King James Version or a New King James Version, you might be saying, wait a minute, Paul, you missed a couple sentences in there. You skipped over part of 7 and 8. Well, I actually didn't. The King James and the New King James have a couple sentences in there that are not in most other translations. That's because the older, more reliable Greek texts, the manuscripts, do not have those sentences in there. Okay, now the whole point of this passage and my focus this morning is the reliability of this testimony. 
But if we have manuscripts and translations that have different content, how can we be sure of anything? After all, the reliability of the Bible, it's central to our faith, amen? So I think it's important that we take a few minutes to look at this. And what I hope you'll see is that this discrepancy actually helps to demonstrate the reliability of the text that we have, the Word of God. So here again in verses 7 and 8, the NIV reads like this. In verse 7, it says, For there are three that testify, colon, and that's where it stops. And the ESV says almost the same thing. The New King James is very close to this point, but then it adds this. It adds, in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one. And then it adds this to the beginning of verse 8. And there are three that bear witness on earth. And then it has the rest of verse 8. Now, if you have a New King James or a, an original King James Version, you might find that these words are in brackets and in italics. It's suggesting there's something different about these verses. But notice something else about them. They are a clear commentary on the Trinity. They say, in heaven, the Father, the Word, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one. Interesting. Well, this disputed content is known as the Johannine comma. And you can, you can read up with it, but what is up with this? Well, here's the thing. All of the Greek manuscripts up to the 10th century, none of them had this in it. And then one manuscript in the 11th century and one manuscript in the 12th century had this penned into the margin of the text and they were penned in by a different hand. Kind of like what you see here. This is Erasmus' Bible. We'll talk about him in a moment. They were just kind of penned in. You could tell that they clearly were an addition. They weren't there originally. So what is it? It's probably the work of an overzealous scribe who thought that he needed to help the New Testament explain the concept of the Trinity. Or it's possible that it was just someone's notes like you see here and later a scribe in error pulled them in and included them in the text because there are some later 15th, 16th century Greek manuscripts that have them. There's about three of them that have it in the text itself. Now remember they didn't have copy machines. They had to hand copy every one of these manuscripts. And so it left the possibility for something like this to happen. In total, we have hundreds of Greek manuscripts and thousands of copies. This little Johannine comma appears in, depending on who you believe, three to maybe eight of those manuscripts. And, and if you include the Latin manuscripts, there's more than 26,000 manuscripts and fragments of the New Testament. But here's something fascinating. Even if we didn't have any manuscripts at all, you could recreate almost the entire New Testament with the exception of just 11 verses from the quotes of the early church fathers as they wrote about the Bible. 
Now that wasn't scripture. They were writing about scripture and they quoted scripture. And they even debated this whole idea of the Trinity. There's a lot of talk about that in the first, second, third century. Yet not one of them quotes the additional words in verses 7 and 8. Several of them do quote verses 6 and they quote verse 8. But the words of that Johannine comma are not included. Now, if they're talking and debating the Trinity and the exact nature of the Trinity, and this is such a clear text, you think it would be included in their quote, but it's not. It's almost certain, and pretty much every scholar agrees, that these verses, this part, was never in the original text. It was something that was added centuries later. So how did it get into the, you go, well, I always liked the King James, New King James Bible. I thought it was trustworthy. How did it get in there? It's kind of a fun story, actually. I said it wasn't in the early Greek manuscripts. It did show up in some of the Latin manuscripts in the 5th century and became more and more common in the Latin translations of the Bible. And, and it began originally, again, as notes in the margin but then was later included in the text. Well, in the year 1520, a great scholar named Erasmus, that's the short version of his name, he created an accurate edition of the Bible in Greek. And some people compared Erasmus' Bible to the Latin versions that were out there, and they noticed that this passage was left out. And when they asked Erasmus, he said, you won't find these words in any Greek manuscript. If you find me one Greek manuscript with these words in them, I'll include them in my next printing. Well, someone discovered <laughs> a Greek manuscript with these words in them. And so they knew it wasn't an ancient manuscript. It was 16th century at the earliest. However, he had already said, you know, he promised, you find one, I'll include it. And so he reluctantly added the words to his third edition of his Bible in 1522. However, he also added a footnote. And this was what was in that other manuscript I showed you. He added a footnote saying that the later Greek manuscript had been written on purpose just to embarrass him. Well, that Greek manuscript that's found is called the Codex Manaforti, and it's in a library of, I like this, Trinity College in Dublin, Ireland. It's still around. Anyway, Erasmus reluctantly included it, and his version of the Greek text is one that was used in the development of the King James and the New King James Bible. That's why it's in there. Okay, what's the point of all of this? I don't know. <laughs> you figure it out. No. The point is that we have so many preserved manuscripts of the New Testament. Again, over 26,000. That any discrepancy sticks out like a sore thumb. And so, there's only a very small number of variations that exist. Most of them are little things like punctuation or spelling. They're very small. None of the variations that exist across any of the manuscripts call into question a doctrine, a core doctrine of Christianity. In fact, uh, Professor Bart Ehrman is often quoted, he's a foremost New Testament textual scholar, and he's not a believer, he's an agnostic. And even Dr. Ehrman says that 
essential Christian beliefs are not affected by textual variance in the manuscript tradition of the New Testament. In fact, when scholars take the science of textual criticism and compare all the texts, they find that they are 99.5% identical. Virtually identical. In other words, we can count on, we can have confidence that the text we have right here is what was originally penned. It's what God inspired. Because he not only inspired it, he preserved it for us. This, this level of accuracy is unheard of in ancient writings. Nothing else even comes close to the number of manuscripts and the accuracy of the manuscripts. So that's the scoop on the problematic text. The portions of verses 7 and 8 aren't really there. But it should give us confidence in what we see. If you hear somebody saying, oh, the Bible is just a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy like the game of telephone and you can't trust it, that's a lie. It's so far from the truth. Okay, well, let's move to the personal test in verses 9 through 10. It says, we accept God's testimony, or we accept man's testimony, but God's testimony is greater because it is the testimony of God, which he has given about his son. Anyone who believes in the son of God has this testimony in his heart. Anyone, who's, do not, anyone who does not believe God has made him out to be a liar because he has not believed the testimony God has given about his son. Now, it's not wrong to accept the testimony of mankind if corroborated. Again, we, our whole judicial system depends on the testimony of people. And the Bible says every matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. And John throughout has been testifying. The apostles in the, in the gospels and in the, in the epistles testify to what they saw. In Christ, it's not wrong to have the testimony of men. Believers and unbelievers alike accept testimony from people. But God's testimony is greater, verse 9 says, because it is the testimony of God which he has given about his son. See, it's not blind faith. The Christian faith is not blind faith. It's not even Oprah's intuition. It's the testimony of God. It's historical evidence. Consider this. We have, we have radio telescopes that stare out into space, listening for signals and coded messages from intelligent life forms. Meanwhile, we hold in our hand a message that God has given to us, his testimony. And yet, because of the darkness of man's heart, many choose to ignore it. It's right here in front of us. We have the testimony of God which he has given us about his son, verse 9 says. Can you imagine any greater testimony than the testimony of Almighty God? The one who created everything, who is omniscient, the God who cannot lie? Scripture says it's impossible for God to lie. Well, that's just what the Bible says. And that's circular reasoning because 
It says it's true because it says it's true. And so I don't believe it. Well, check it out for yourself, if that's what you think. Check out the archaeology. Check out the prophecy. Check out the statistical probability of the Bible. And if you're objective, you'll come to the undeniable conclusion that this is a supernatural message from God, and it's absolutely true. Why well, don't want to? I've got better things to do. Okay, we'll come back to you at the end of verse 10. Maybe you're one that would say, it may have been true when it was first recorded, but it was written and rewritten so many times that what we have today bears little resemblance to the original text. Well, we've already talked about that. That's simply not true. Christian and non-Christian scholars alike who work with the science of textual criticism agree that this is remarkably accurate. You might be one who would say, I didn't know about the accuracy of the Bible or all of those manuscripts, but I didn't need to know in order to believe. I've experienced God personally. I've seen his spirit at work in my life. I've experienced his transforming power. I'm not the same person I used to be, and no one could ever convince me that this is not God's word or that, or ever convince me that every word of it is not absolutely true. You, you, you just know this. Well, if that's you, you're what it's talking about in the first part of verse 10. It says, anyone who believes in the Son of God has this testimony in his heart. In other words, you have the indwelling presence of God through his spirit. You have more than just the external testimony of the, the water, the blood, the scriptures inspired by the spirit. You have the internal testimony of God by the spirit that he's given you. I'll bet the pastors in Kenya have never dug into the Johannan comma or a lot of the manuscript evidence. And they didn't need to. Because the gospel came to them not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit, and with deep conviction, just as 1 Thessalonians 1.5 says. And when they heard it, they accepted it, not as the word of men, but as it actually is, the word of God, which is at work in you who believe. Just as 1 Thessalonians 2.13 says. They didn't have to see all that. God testified to it. And now having believed they have this testimony in their heart. And they know that it's true. They have the same testimony within them that many of us here have. Remember also from chapter 4? The Gnostics also believed that God was distant from his creation. He made the whole thing and wound it up and then he stepped far, far away and he just lets it run. But that too was a lie. That idea that the Gnostics have comes from nothing but their imagination. We saw in chapter 4 that God assures us of our salvation in the most intimate way possible. How did he do that? By dwelling within us. Look back at chapter 4 verse 13. It says we know that we live in him and he in us because he has given us his spirit. And in verse 15. 
If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in him and he in God. We have this internal testimony of God by his Spirit. We're saved. Remember, when the Spirit comes into our life and regenerates us, the Holy Spirit joins with our human spirit. And Romans 8.16 says, The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Those who believe can testify to this. We have this testimony in our heart and nobody can convince us otherwise. But now let's look back to those who don't believe. Look at the last half of verse 10. Anyone who does not believe God has made him out to be a liar because he has not believed the testimony God has given about his son. Well, I'm not calling him a liar. I just, I just don't believe in God and I don't believe in this Jesus thing. You're calling him a liar because this is God's testimony. This is why God can judge the world with justice because he's given testimony to the truth of this. He shared it with us. He didn't hide it. He made it known. Can you imagine standing face to face with God and calling him a liar? That wasn't true. I, once they get there, they won't think that anymore. The personal test comes down to this. Do you believe that this is God's word or not? Let's go to the next slide. <laughs> do you believe that this is God's word or not? And if you do, what are you doing in response to that? What are you doing about it? That's the personal test. Sometimes a, a person doesn't believe simply because he hasn't heard. He hasn't heard of God and his love and his work of redemption. He doesn't know that God is the creator of all things. He's never heard that. He's never heard the gospel. But oftentimes a person doesn't believe because they choose not to believe. It's not that they can't believe. It's not that there isn't enough evidence to believe. They choose not to. It's usually rooted in pride. A person doesn't want to yield to any person, Lord, other than themselves. I want to live my life the way I want to. I don't want anybody telling me what I can and cannot do. I'm the captain of my soul. It's an unwillingness to yield to any authority greater than themselves. And so they don't want the Lord. What does the Lord mean? Master. They don't want the Lord in their life. They don't want anyone telling them what to do. And so the result is destruction that will come upon them, both in this life, eventually, and certainly in eternity. That's not what God wants for anyone. He didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world. He sent his son into the world to save the world through him, John 3, 17. He shed his blood that we might be cleansed and draw near to him. That this whole matter of sin that separates us from God, that that could be dealt with so we could be united to a totally holy God and we could be the recipients of his blessing, of his inheritance. But each person has to decide where they stand in regard to this testimony, the testimony of God. Listen to how this passage from Hebrews brings all of this together in a marvelous way. I'll read you Hebrews chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. 
It says this, how shall we escape if we ignore such a great salvation? This salvation, which was first announced by the Lord, was confirmed to us by those who heard him, their testimony. God also testified to it by signs, wonders, and various miracles, and gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. God's made it really clear. This is his testimony. This is his truth. That passage really says it all. So the question we have to ask ourselves is, where do we stand in relation to this testimony? Do we receive it as the word of God? Will we, will we surrender to the authority of God? Will we receive his forgiveness that he has for us? His love, his blessing? Or will we call him a liar? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you've gone to such great lengths not only to save us, but also to communicate your message of salvation. How shall we escape if we ignore such a great salvation? And God, you say that faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of God. And we've been hearing your word, Lord. We've dug deeply into your word. And I pray that that word would take deep root in our hearts. God, I pray that it would strengthen the faith of those who believe and that it would also bring a change of heart to those who do not. So that in all things, God, you might be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen.